Yes, that's good. Asril, you have a sound check from you as well? Sounds perfect. <laughs> yeah, but, but I want to hear you as well. <laughs> that's why I'm asking. Your, your sound is also good. Welcome to the Café Con Paolo Freire podcast, Learning Life and Liberation. Uh, we have been doing uh, Café Con Paolo Freire's here in Uppsala, Sweden, since 2021. Um, we started in September uh, on the 100-year anniversary of Paolo Freire's birthday, I think. Uh, you came with this initiative as real, and then we had very different sessions o- over the years, and it's been very fun. Uh, I should also say that Paulo Freire and the pedagogics of Paulo Freire was an important part also of CMS when CMS started in the 90s uh, with student-led education. So, so that's uh, an extra fun aspect for us as well to do this. Uh, I should also introduce myself. So I'm Daniel Mosbay. I'm lead outreach coordinator and educational coordinator here at CMS, uh, which is the Center for Environment and Development Studies. And that's a center at Uppsala University. Um, here in Sweden, like I mentioned. Um, what we try to do with the podcast or what I set out, kind of like a very short manifesto for the whole thing, is also we've been very good at talking and uh, academics and, and thinkers and uh, however we want to describe ourselves, we're very good at talking. But we wanted also to bring in a practical aspect to give something back also to educator, educators, activists and others out there listening. Um, so, so that's also something I'll remind you of and come back to in all of this. Um, and also now from this autumn, we're doing a podcast. So the first episode is available, uh, online and on other platforms that you can listen to it, uh, which was really good. And that's also a long introduction of you, Asriel, uh, and, and your life and your connection with Freire and the pedagogics of Freire and the world we're in right now. I think I'll stop there because podcasts have too long introductions. Uh, and and uh, so, so let's get going uh, with a round. Do you want to say something very brief about yourself as well, Azril? Uh, short. <laughs> I make uh, 82 years very short. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I think we know pretty much everyone. Um, what can I say? Engaged academic. Um, always with one foot in academia since I started and still an activist every day until the last drop of my blood. Thank you. I am Walter Cohen. I'm very happy to be at this cafe con Paulo Freire. And I, I was wondering about the learning life and liberation. I was wondering why learning is a verb and life and liberation are not verbs. And how would it look like if we read learning, living, and liberating? And what's the relationship between them? Learning to love, to live, learning to liberate, liberating, learning, liberating life. What are we doing here? Mm. Nice. <laughs> That's very good. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I would take this uh, as a guiding question also for work that we're doing here at Central Paulo Freire uh, in Vienna, Austria. We're very happy to have you guys here visiting us from South America. Um, someone uh, coming by Sweden, the other one coming in 
directly from Brazil. And it's a great pleasure for us to, to have you here and to be also connected to Uppsala, Sweden, because I think um, Freies Pedagogy is something that we need in the whole world. And especially in Europe, I think there's so, especially in, in the field of education, he's not, he doesn't have the presence that he should have. And especially here in Vienna, we're working to, to give him more presence in that field and beyond. So, yeah, I'm really happy to be able to discuss with you today. And looking forward to an interesting session. Mm. Uh, and do you want to say something more about the Paulo Freire Week that you're organizing, and also your center, just to to, to set us off to, to why we're oh, here? Yes, of course. Yeah, um, Balta and, and Asli are visiting us for a Freire Week that we are organizing this November in uh, Vienna, and we are right in the middle of this week. So Wednesday is now the peak day, but still, there's one more. There's two more talks to go and, and one symposium, which will last the whole day on Friday. And our idea is to have those people here from South America to also make us question our own um, approaches towards education and um, towards life. Because what we know is that uh, Freire always wanted to transform the world. And we know we have to make uh, an impact and uh, transform something if we want to make sure that life is still possible on this planet. So. Um, this week shall be uh, about getting a lot of inspirations from from people who, who have been knowing Friday um, for a long time and have um, dedicated a lot of their time to work with his concept and ideas. And in general, at the Central Paulo Friday in, in Vienna, we are a student society organization that works closely related to academia, but also our approach is to get the knowledge out of the academic circle and of um, yeah people involved from all parts of society. Okay, thank you so much. Um, we should start also, we, we always had, uh, when doing other podcasts, the same as a, a bit of a longer answer and, and an in-depth question, um, and also from your uh, uh, outline uh, of this uh, podcast today, Asriel. Uh, but let's start with you, Walter, uh, and you also picked apart the subtitle of the podcast, which is really good. That That's a good entry point in, in all of this. Um, but also to to get a more of an introduction of you, uh, basically how you came, became engaged in the issues you're working with now, uh, and also how you came in contact with Paulo Freire and his work uh, through your academic career and in your life in general. Right. Uh, well, I, I need to say that it's not, uh, it's not for so long that I've been engaging in writing and thinking more completely and more intensely with Paulo Freire. Uh, symbolically, I arrived, I was born in Argentina and, and uh, I arrived to Brazil five days after Paulo Freire died, the 7th of May, 1997. He died May 2nd. Right. That's so, my birthday. Yes, yeah, so I come five days after the 7th. So... And uh, that time I was visiting professor at the University of Brasilia, and uh, I stood five years in Brasilia, and then the last 20 in Rio de Janeiro. And also, to be sincere, the, the, the circles of Paulo Freire, I was kind of uh, skeptical in many senses, because in, 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 some, in some respects, uh, I, 
I, I was not so so invited to to be inside in terms of I feel something like like a like a group like a church like it's like a like a sect. So so I, I was kind of distant and and this is something I unfortunately has gone be has gone through the figure of Paulo Freire in Brazil. It seems that you need to be. It seems you need to love or to hate Paulo Freire. So there's, it seems that there are people in favor and against. And, and that's not, in my opinion, that's not helpful because Paulo Freire is, is an extraordinary man, an extraordinary figure to think with. And usually when, when you are taken by, by these uh, feelings uh, of hate, uh, you cannot think very much. You are like, like, uh, you cannot see, you cannot perceive. So I would say that when the hate against Paulo Freire took an, an unacceptable dimension in terms of the Bolsonaro government, when Bolsonaro was was uh, arrived as president of Brazil with a platform saying that the main aim of his educational program was to expel the ideology of Paulo Freire from Brazilian education, I think this was completely unacceptable, and, uh, and and I needed and I feel committed to take a public voice and to write and to to have a more active uh, position in this debate. Mm. And what in life also led you to to education and uh, and into academia? Was there specific things uh, that got you involved in that? Well, in nineteen in two thousand seventeen, I took a sabbatical of one year that I dedicated to write a, a book on on Paulo Freire, which was Paulo Freire more than never or more than ever. It's interesting that in English you can translate both and as a philosophical biography. And since then, since then, I, I work at the State University of Rio. And my let's say my relationships to the Paulo Freire uh, world in Brazil has 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 deepened and has gone close and and I took part in different activities and in different interventions both inside and outside university related to Paulo Freire's work and, and life. All right. Um, and, and I think also the, the title, uh, Learning Life and Liberation, that you just remixed, we just have to rename the podcast, right, uh, Astrid, because it's, <laughs> we don't want to have life and liberation be passive <laughs> in this process and, and learning be the only active part. Uh, okay. Um, Astrid, did you have a follow-up on that? or, or? Yeah. yeah, I could begin with a provocative question by Walter. Uh, just trying to make some meaningful uh, reflection. So, uh, learning is a lifelong process. And the lifelong process can be to reproduce, as Isvan Mezaros says, the world that we don't want, the world of oppression and exploitation, but also a way to bring about the world we want, the possible world that humanity and the planet needs. So that was one way to connect. At the same time, this life learning process 
as a process, and this is one line that I like about Paulo Freire, is that we are not, we are becoming. This is this phenomenological approach that I like. And then we are becoming for what? To be oppressed and be oppressors? Or to liberate ourselves from the old crap, the old conditioning, you know, what he, uh, Freire called unlearning, unconditioning the self, untraining, or to rescue our creativity, our power, our understanding, our consciousness, in order to transform the world. So that would be one first line. And the second, I agree fully with Walter, because I'm, as an old-timer, and this is a long story, I was able to be enchanted and disenchanted and to the extent that um, first I was privileged to, to have been in touch with the different groupings of the sect, so to speak. Um, in the beginning, it was the when Freire was in exile, uh, gently pushed out by the military dictatorship in Brazil. And that's an important point in history because people associate neoliberalism with Pinochet and Friedman and the Chicago School. No, it started in Brazil in the mid-60s. It's very important to remember that. And then Freire was Minister of Education, and then he went to Chile, and he was working in ISIRA, Instituto de Investigación y Capacitación de la Reforma Agraria, and they came with the United Nations to Peru with FAO to support the agrarian reform in Peru. So, so that's how physically we met with him. But before, it was a book that is not... Most people mention the pedagogy of the press, which is fine. But extensional communication is a very important book. It's about communication. And the book, in I think, was even published in English first, Extension, All Communication. Extension is persuasive communication. It's monological communication, like me talking too much. But then it's publicity, propaganda, education, psychotherapy, and so on and so forth. And the alternative to extension that he sees as extended oppression from the centers of knowledge research to the users of knowledge. And then he calls that communication meaning dialogue. So I think it's quite an important piece. So in Peru, and you try to cut me if I speak too long, his main task was to support the literacy program. Uh, Gustav Salazar Bondit is not well known even by Peruvians today, brilliant. In Sweden, they regarded as the most meaningful, radical education reform in the world. Okay? So, um, but he came to our group trying to design our training, not only peasants, but agrarian agents for agrarian reform. So he dropped something with us. He said, you should use big media, um, 
radio, television, whatever, in a dialogical form, goodbye. So then we were left with the task, what do we do? So we did create the radio, peasant radio forms for agrarian reform, because radio was cheap, available all over Peru. And then the form was like study circles, uh, they call them circles de cultura, in the north, working with the biggest camponeses, biggest camponeses, peasant dicks. So, so we tried beginning 69, we lasted till 76. Uh, after there was a counter, yeah, you could say, a reactionary coup that moved Peru back to the right after 74, but rapidly after 76. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, but the, I think Freire would be very sad, if not depressed, by seeing how there were controversies between, uh, let's say, uh, Torres in the States and uh, um, trying to make Gutierrez uh, in Costa Rica, who started with eco-pedagogics. And then uh, his second wife, Anita, and the Paulo Freire Institute, uh, where I was linked and resigned for similar reasons, twice. Um, and I think it is good to be critical the way Walter has, has been, in the sense that uh, we are still trapped in all patterns of competition, uh, maybe property rights, that was the problem with Anita. Um, and then I was also very close to Carlos Torres in Mexico, who was one of the Mexican, uh, Paulo Freire, in addition to Arturo, whom I didn't know. Um, and I actually tried to make a bridge between Moacir and Carlos Torres in the meeting in Guadalajara. It didn't work. Carlos had side with Anita, and it didn't work. But at least the attempt was done to, you know, break, make bridges through this kind of shed, you know, noise that we don't need. So the human factor should be acknowledged, and that includes us as well. Um, so maybe that's enough of that. Yeah. Uh, Does anyone want to build on that or jump in? Yeah, for me, if I can add something to, to what you were saying, um, it's always a pity to see that there's so much conflict in the legacy of Paulo Freire because um, the way I got to know his thought was just very different because I went to, I mean, very different. You also got to know him mean, at a certain point of your life, but knowing about all this controversy that has been there, it sometimes make uh, dealing with this a bit harder, I guess. So for me, it was just, I was in, in um, Chile doing a, a master's in, in, in Santiago de Chile and Chile in 2017, just before um, the movement, the social movement, the last day social um, broke out in 2019. And you could already see that students were protesting, that people knew that. That's a beautiful social uh, movement. Yeah, it was, it was. And they were very much connected to Friday. And so I got to know him by the social movements and I was like, who is this person? Because before that, I had studied uh, to become a teacher in Austria and all 
of my uh, four years of uh, teacher education, I'd never heard about writing. And I get to Chile and suddenly I think, wow, there's, there's some very in, impressive and inspiring statements of writing that they were using in their protest, that they were writing down on their banners. And, I mean, it's like, hey, I have to go, get to know this person. We know who that is. Um, someone who lived a long time ago, and still, like for me, then it felt like a long time ago. And still, people are referring to him, and and he's so alive. And he's, um, yeah, I think this is the the kind of energy that that we also want to um, get here in in Austria. And and it should be it would be cool, like if he. he could be more well known in Europe, and if you could, <laughs> and not, that, that, that we don't focus so much on, on the conflicts about it between different um, schools of thought that want to have him on this side or the other. Um, it's a challenge, yeah. But I like Walt's approach and just um, working with the words that are there, working with the, the work, the books, and, and trying to to formulate our own questions that we have. And this is. I mean, it can be so inspiring to have uh, an, an approach that enables people to ask questions. And I think, yeah, that's the problem of the medium of podcast because you can't really include your listeners and tell them to ask questions. But um, this is, I think, for me, the most uh, the, the most important thing I learned from Friday. And, and that is that I feel is now being taken to Austria and with you guys. And that's why I'm grateful to. To have you here and help elaborate more on this. Yeah. yeah. Because one thing that for me is an important thing that, uh, that Adri was saying is um, that we have to unlearn things also because schools were not built, at least in my country, <laughs> they were not introduced, they were not conceptualized to liberate. Not at all. Um, in Austria, I think the the schools date back to the uh, 18th century when the emperor <laughs> decided to make public education for everybody available, but not to form conscious um, citizens, but to make sure that the army and the industry have enough supply of, of, of workforce that at least knows how to read and write, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, could I jump in um, here, Asril? Because the this unlearning yeah, theme is uh, yeah. to you. I want to jump on what David just said. Yeah. No. Do you want to do a short comment because it's a perfect bridge to the next uh, part of this uh, that I wanted to ask about as well. But did you have a yeah. short comment, Asril? We can just weave that into here. It. Yeah. 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 To to David and then to Walter as well. Uh, I was very surprised in Berlin. And I was with Chico Whitaker, and she listened to where was the first Department of Public Education in Germany. It was in the Ministry of Interior. I mean, could be more self-evident, social control. It was like, wow. And then the education is to domesticate, to conform, or to liberate. So there was bingo. Uh, that was one comment um and yeah inspiration so one question or reflection is how Freire realized that hope was a very important political variable at the time of hopelessness 
And if you realize that in the late 90s, today, one of the big problems in the moral environment, social environment, social culture, is hopelessness. You know, and, and hopelessness very easily leads to skepticism, cynicism, and then we become paralyzed. So his pedagogy of hope is quite interesting. Um, now, after the Second World War, people were also very hopeless. And then in theology, German theology created theology of hope. And then from Latin America, Gustavo Gutierrez came with theology of liberation. But then Freire came with the pedagogy of hope. So it's interesting to see this historically as well, which I think it's a missing piece in today's education. People are living with information from social media, and they lack the historic density to make sense of things. And just to finish this last thing, in 2018, I read that Bolsonaro had vowed to burn Pablo Ferreira's books publicly the way Hitler did with what he didn't like, you know, to Jewish, to something. So my response was to that year to write about Freire in different realms, in three different. So that was my intellectual rebellion against Bolsonaro to begin with. Okay, great. Um, we should, I, I think that's uh, good as a general startup of all of this, but I wanted to build on both your work, Walter, but also what you said, David, uh, about the theme of unlearning. Uh, which we can turn in different directions. But I'm thinking also the theme you have for today, if I'm reading the program right, is uh, Paulo Freire, Childhood and the Revolutionary Education. So so that's what you're doing later today, right? Yeah. Uh, that sounds familiar. Yes. 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 Um, but also what... Uh, uh, I think it was Ken Robinson who did these videos and also books. Um, he's from the UK originally, but he lived in Los Angeles. Uh, and he had these videos about how how we in school uh, lose things along the way, how we're kind of through schooling learning how to become almost less human. Uh, we lose certain capacities, certain ways of, of uh, living in the world, but also relating to each other and relating to the world. So, uh, and that connects to the theme of unlearning uh, and also connecting maybe to Freire as well. Uh, so, Walter, do you, what is your kind of understanding of a, a child or a, the understanding of a human being uh, and also in relationship to learning and education? Uh, for me, the idea of childhood is very important to, under, to, to connect, to understand and to, to relate to Freire's thinking and life. In many ways, uh, childhood is is also a very interesting idea because usually we 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 think about childhood in terms of a lack from 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 the word infancy, which is which comes from the Latin infant. We think child as not speaking, as not having a voice, and we usually think education as the formation of the child into the adults we drink with, the, the responsible adult, the democratic adult, etc. Usually we think education as abandoning childhood, as turning childhood into adults. 
But Freire is one of these great figures that help us to reconnect or unlearn all these ideas about childhood and adulthood and to reconnect and invent another form of childhood. Could not as an age, I'm speaking about, but childhood as a time. Uh, this for Freire was very, very meaningful. And just as an anecdote, in in a conference, in a lecture in the University of Sao Paulo, when Freire was 67 years old, it was a conference about education and human rights. Conference said, uh, Freire said that one of the best things that he had done in his life, even better than the books he has written, and Paulo Freire has written wonderful books, so this might be a very good thing he did, was to keep alive the child he was and the child he could not be. And this is extraordinary. Keep alive the child he was and the child he could not be. So that childhood is not something we educate, but it's something that helps us to educate if we keep it alive. So we need our childhood alive, not to turn childhood into another thing, but to learn from the strength of the curiosity, the um, creativity, the unquietness of a child. So, and I also remember uh, another thing that is connected with this, that Freire more than once said when asked about his method, that he truly didn't have a method. Hmm but that what he had was curiosity and, and political commitment with progress. And I understand this as saying what I always had is childhood and political commitment. So childhood is something extraordinary for educators, not to educate, but as a condition to maintain alive in themselves in order to educate people of any age. This is just a childhood of, of, I would say, lots of things, but this is just a childhood to think together about childhood. Can I jump in? Yes. You cut me short. You know me. <clears throat> um, this is why one of the first things that the church did when they came to Latin America was to educate with strong emphasis on women, because males looked with the church as something more female-ish, women-ish. Um, so be the modern state Germany having the Ministry of Education, the department was not a ministry, in the Ministry of Interior, or the church doing that, the intention for social control. If you control the mind, you control the behavior, right? And we see it today as a very crucial issue. Um, so that was one point. And then, interesting, go to the beginning of the 19th century. And then you had um, two movements that were very important. The back to nature, the Narodnik in Russia, Van der Vogel in Germany, the Boy Scouts in the UK. And then, 
philosopher of education, very important in Northern Europe, was Schliemann. And people don't know much about Schliemann, but he defined the contours of public education discipline. And discipline to the point of torture. So now I go back to, to Rousseau. Um, and Moacir Gadotti, that is still the general director of the Paulo Freire Institute, I smile because I don't believe in bureaucracies. That's one reason I resigned to the Paulo Freire Institute. But he writes beautifully. He's very smart, writes beautifully. He goes to Rousseau, and Rousseau puts what is the tripod of what we call learning teaching. It's oneself, others, significant others, teachers, parents, whatever, and other things, things that could be natural things or artifacts created by, by humans. So in this trio, the key thing is what you mentioned, the autonomy and the curiosity of the child. Now, but this is interactive with others. Now, who are the others? You see, they are the teachers for good and bad. Now, these significant others, these teachers, can invite the child to be him or herself, to be a child, to be oneself, or to deny, to respond to the point of a book called Soul Murder about the son of this philosopher, Schliemann, who became psychotic, and this is the basis of the theory of paranoia from Freud. So Schliemann, the philosopher, was torturing to discipline his son to the point of psychosis. Soul murder. So I think we round up some ideas. And if I build on that as well, because uh, and let's let's start with you, David, uh, this round, uh, if you can hear me over there, um, because I'm also thinking, how can we then practically put this in practice? I mean, the, the last two words are uh, revolutionary education. Um, if if you have some examples from your experience, David, or how you worked at the Paolo Freire Center uh, in Austria. I think what's important here and also like one of the first steps that we have to take is to talk about the dedication of educators to get into the teacher education system. Um, because this is like educational science in Austria is, is very positivist and it's not on vogue to talk about um, that education is actually political and that we should have a commitment with the oppressed, as, as Walter said. And if you never mention these things, if you never think about what, why do, why do you want to be a teacher? Who are you teaching for? And um, why did you choose this career after all? It, it's it's just the very base of of the whole thing is missing, and that's why we just our idea is to to make people aware of that. That there's so much more in in the world of of educational science and of education than just 
um, making quantitative studies about um, which method works and which not. And because of course it's important to to make people literate, but it's more important. This it can only they can only be fully literate, as I would say, if they can read and write write the world, not just um, a text, and and maybe not even really being able to question it. So read it to transform it. Read it to transform it. That's that's a really good word, and um, so for us, our idea is always to to raise the consciousness. I and mean, we are a very small uh, institution. We're very aware of our limits, but still, for example, this week we have the opportunity to um, go with Walter to the Department of Education and, and and talk to people who will be teachers. We're doing this today. We will do it tomorrow, and on Friday we have the whole day for a symposium and. Also Monday, in the lecture that we were at another institute, uh, the Institute of Development Studies, there were teachers among us, and they were very interested in, in the way Walter made them question not only their work, but everything related to education, because education is not just what happens in schools. And it was a beautiful experience, and I hope that parting from these experiences, like we have this week now, but there's so many other interactions we can have with people and, and we have more channels, we have uh, publications, we have uh, a podcast as you guys have too. And, and we just have to be more present with that. And what I personally love is to work with children. I do this only voluntarily and it's not a formal education, but informally. But still, it's one of the best things I have in my life. And um, it always inspires me a lot. And I can feel that I myself am learning so much, and it's a uh, yeah a place where I feel most comfortable. I think being able to talk with people and and in a mutual process of mutual learning and uh, inspire my consciousness and and make it more uh, wide. Yeah. Thank you. And I think also it is very much, uh, I'll weave in, uh, I'll get back to you, Walter, but I think it's also that in sometimes, and, and we're all for having a, a global perspective or having a very uh, systemic, you focus on system changes and the big changes, and you see a lot of impossibilities in systems. But I think we, we could do more and focus on the spaces, whether it's the spaces teachers have for changing things, uh, the the kind of freedom they still have in the classroom and, and engaging uh, students. Uh, and I think also very concrete examples uh, from, I mean, this is higher education, but it may be not so different in, in the structures, at least in the Swedish context, that if you, for example, start a school garden and you have the kids outside, you grow a garden together, you cook with the, the vegetables that you have out of the garden, that's a very concrete way of changing how you spend the time with your students, for example. And there's a campus garden just next to us here at CMS, um, and just encouraging students' curiosity and, and, and their activities. So I think also we, we can be much better in just finding concrete activities uh, and after-school things and more informal things as well. Yeah, I can, I can suggest you also another example uh, related to one idea that is very important in Freire, which is the idea of questions and questioning. Uh, Freire wrote a book with a, with a Chilean educator, Antonio Faundes, that in, in Portuguese is called Towards the Pedagogy of the Question, 
when it was translated as the pedagogy of freedom, learning to question. In, the, in these books, the, it inspires lots of suggestions because usually in our schools, we think that the one who questions is because she doesn't know and the one who knows answer. But it might be precisely the opposite. And usually we put the questions at the end in order to realize that the one who does not know understood well what the one who knows has taught her. But if we just put this around, and this is also what the revolutionary education might might mean, because revolution has to has an etymological sense of turning around things, of, of turn, putting things the other way they are. So if we put questions at the beginning and not as signs of not knowing, but as signs of knowing. And we can also think that a question is not a, a sign of a learner, but also it could be a sign of a teacher, a teacher or a teaching. So we could realize that teachers might be much more questioners, might welcome also questioners, and also might stop thinking that they need to answer children's questions. Because as Freire said in that book, when you answer a question, you constrain a curiosity. And precisely the meaning of education is quite the opposite, is to nurture curiosity. So as you say, the example of, of the food and, and of the vegetables. So if we could if we could foster classrooms where teachers and students together foster questions, foster curiosity, foster the things that they want to know, instead of trying to find the answers, the end of curiosity, that might also mean a very different type of educational experience. Can I come in? Yes, go ahead. Okay, we are conversing about having the next programs with Ivan Illich and then Gustavo Esteva and so on. So that's an interesting point. It was a debate, dialogue between Ivan Illich and Paulo Freire, where Illich wrote and he was advocating the schooling society because schooling would be the public or private, it didn't matter. It's a way to to be elitist, to reproduce inequality and so on. And Freire said we still need to see the schools as a trench. So they worked, they published a little book together in this discussion. Something else is how um, Maria Montessori and Freire regarded education not as David said as in the education in the classroom, but um, any place, any space, any spatial temporal conjunction, it's a learning possibility to reproduce or to bring change. So uh, there is a book uh, published by the Paulo Freire Institute in Portugal, Uma Outra Educação Possible, possible uh, uh, and the chapter there was how can we intervene, social, social educational intervene in order to 
bring about awareness and, and change. So those were just some suggestions to the example. Maybe two two cases rapidly, case concrete examples. Yeah, go ahead. So one was with a open score in the border between Malaga and Granada. And so we did a workshop two, three years ago with the children ages four till eight, nine, and with the parents. With the children, it was to pair, and the exercise was how to listen better to each other. So they paired. David will ask, you know, will listen to what, what you want to say and vice versa. And then they will share with the group. So that's, but then we learn as we do. I found out there were too many children, better have smaller groups, and also age groups, because their understanding can vary. With the parents, it worked quite well. So that's one recent experience. The other one was in areas various corner next to where I live, and it was a workshop with 600 um, from age 9 to 15. So we divided them in in four big groups, 150. And it was about school democracy and culture of peace. So to deal with the question of school democracy, we asked the students to say who influences their thoughts, their behaviors. And so in the blackboard, we feel the blackboard, my mother, my best friend, the prime minister, whoever. So it was the provocative question. And then they bombarded with us, but still we did. Then we discussed what does it mean? It means power over some people over other people. And this is what democracy is about. Democracy is about power. So if we relations are more equal, you equalize power. It's more democratic. It's more equal, less democratic. And then very shortly, the culture of peace, because Freire got the UNESCO award for peace educator in 74. And so he was dealing also with uh, peace education. It's, it's interesting to read his speech in UNESCO that year. But I'm thinking also now for the symposium you have on Friday, and, and it, I read the, the target audience bullet points you have included there is very similar to what we're trying to do in the podcast or in this series. Uh, but one of them is activists from different fields trying to support uh, empowering the oppressed. Uh, and there's a lot of things we can say about activism, and we talked about that before, Israel. But, but who then are the oppressed? Uh, and this is, <laughs> this is difficult, uh, different in different contexts. We can think about different questions that this question makes us think. So maybe we, we can find other questions that can help us to think the question, who are the oppressed now? Because, for example, I, I would say three or four questions, and maybe my colleagues here can, can add even um, 
uh, is still the the oppressed and the or dichotomy enough to think about our contemporary reality? Each time we have an oppressed, we have an oppressor. Could an be at the same time an oppressor? What is the social productivity and um, reality in our days of the education? What's the relationship between oppression and neoliberalism and neocapitalism? What are our institutions doing in terms of uh, dealing with oppressions we have in contemporary life? Can I be be oppressed if I'm wrong, <laughs> say 1% or 10% of the people in my country, in the world, can I be oppressed if I am of power in a company, for example, or in a school system? Um, can I be of the oppressed if I'm uh, in a family, in a position of power? So I think it's also about really the social relations that Come up in this field. Right. It's okay. Yep. The sound is working. Um, the image is uh, is okay. I want to come from another window. This is uh, has never been publicly, but my view after both reading Marx. Prede is that the pedagogy of the oppressed is an answer to Marx's theory of alienation. And basically, we're not born alienated. We are born very much in communion, child, mother, or whatever. But then we become ourselves. And this is interaction. This is uh, interaction child, where you are defined who you are, you are personified, you are so-and-so, you know, boy or girl, or you are you know, Catholic, or you are Jewish, so you, you are identified, your national, national identity, and so on and so forth. But then, basically, the pedagogy of the press is a way to disalienate to take away the internalized enemy that you can learn from within. And this has to do, for example, with colonized identities. In this struggle of decolonization in North America, they were very adamant about decolonizing identity because people had internalized the identity of the colonizer. So, this is something that was hinted by Walter, where you can be oppressed, you can in, you can oppress yourself and then so of others. You can be a victim and then a victimizer in a very unconscious way that needs to be made aware. Pedagogical oppressed, I think, was a very clever, not explicit, uh, Marx theory of alienation. You become alienated out of your work. If you live in a capitalist society, then you become alienated to compete with each other. You are alienated from nature. Remember modern times with Chaplin. And eventually you become alienated from yourself. If you're alienated from yourself, you have lost power. 
So desalination, then pedagogy of the oppressed, and this is where hope and pedagogy of hope, I think, makes sense. I've met personally a Palestinian psychoanalyst in, in West Bank. He was psychoanalyst. We discussed, you know, <laughs> and um, people that went IRA prison, and they discovered Freire in prison, and discovering and having a study circle in prison gave them hope to come out. So, relating alienation, disalienation, and hope, and how Freire was able to to weave a kind of uh, not answers, but as he read and in his the books he read, he has comments. They've made a book about his comments. I don't know. These days had three days in one, I don't know, because he was doing other things as well. So there was kind of trying to summarize. Yeah, and there's a lot of things to be said on, on that topic. Uh, and Walter, you countered with counter questions, but but I think it it's it's been one of those things um, from activists that you sometimes construct fantasies of who are the oppressed and who are you going to liberate. Um, but it's a big question, and it's kind of hard, maybe with the time we have left, uh, but also how the information landscape over the last years have kind of shifted a lot and, and whether it's conspiracy theories, the far left and the far right uh, collapsing into each other. Um, so so it, it's, yeah. And maybe also the oppressed includes uh, the world kind of beyond humans uh, as well. Um, but that is another and a big question. Um, uh, we should uh, wrap this up. Um, is there anything else uh, looking very also uh, practically in all of this? Um, things you want to, if, if people want to start uh, on the theme of Freire or the theme of revolutionary education or on learning, is there some kind of starting point, uh, a book, a text, a video, something uh, the listeners can start with and, and we can also include in the show notes of this? What I would like to add on uh, what Adriel just said and what um, Walter planted is that I think you should also consider the role of the oppressor because I also says that being an oppressor is not something that is something that prevents people from being fully human. So it's not only about liberating the oppressed, but also the oppressor experience a constriction of their old humanity. So if we think about the revolutionary education and a revolution, it's, it's not only about the, the oppressed, it's also about the oppressors who, for some reason, by their behavior and by their position of power, can't be fully humanized. And this is also a very beautiful um, figure of thought, I think, that Friday introduces to us and gives us a lot of responsibility also if we work or if we as activists try to transform things. And... Um, yeah, I think starting we, we on our website, for example, we have some videos of Paul uh, Freire um, where you can. I think it's always important also to find out what kind of person he was and how he spoke, how he thought, how he taught. Now he was teaching in class or at university, and we have some videos in the collection. So this is something you can really recommend, and if you want, you can later um, send the link to the listeners or add it to the recording of the podcast. I make a quick comment. 
Yep, go ahead. You're most welcome. Don Samuel Ruiz was a bishop in Chiapas, and he just traced Freire, saying, uh, we don't want to kill you, bourgeois capitalist. We want to liberate you from the role of being an oppressor. And that's very complimentary. That's the Theologia India. It was called translating Indian theology or theology of the Indians related to the Zapatistas. Yeah. Thank you. Walter, your last. My last. Uh, remember, Asri, uh, statement of the importance of hope and hoping. Made of hope a verb. In English, it is a verb. But in, in Portuguese and Spanish, we need to create the word esperanza because hope was just a, a noun, esperanza. So re remembering and, and sharing this importance of the hoping in this very, very difficult moment of the world. And also the idea of questioning and doubting and curi being curiosity. I think for an activist, this might be two, two nice friends in one hand hoping and in another questioning, and also self-questioning what's our role and our relationship and our place in this new world we are hoping to begin. Something? Is there time? There is time for a short comment. Yeah. Um, hope, tenderness, loving, but it's also something that Freire shared with Gandhi, which is not to confuse vengeance, anger with indignation. Because this Anita wrote a book about pedagogy of indignation, because as Gandhi would say, without indignation, you have lost the power to respond to injustice. And we want to transform an unjust world to be more just. So I think Freire and Gandhi had that line in common. So uh, I think we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, and thank you so much for for taking part in this. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. We'll try to connect with you. <laughs> yes, let's let's thank connect you. with each other. And there's a ton of other things. Uh, we have pedagogical projects that we can apply for funding, and there's other exchanges within the EU that that we can look at. Absolutely. <laughs>